0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence Fixed Income Credit Currency and Commodity Strategists and Analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team.
1: Hello and welcome once again to the August Edition of the State of Distress Debt, part of the Thick Focus Podcast series. Whereas ever we focus on the U.S. stress, distressed, and bankruptcy markets. Today is August 4th. I'm your host, Noah Hebert, and what the market tooketh, it giveth back in July, at least so in part. So joining me once again to explore it are our Eliza Ronalds Hannan of Bloomberg News, as well as litigation analyst Nagisa Baluku, and CU Distressed Analyst Phil Brendel of Bloomberg Intelligence. In addition, we are pleased to also bring an in-depth conversation with William Q. Duro, Managing Director and Co-Head of Moist's recapitalization and restructuring business, as he offers his view on, well, the state of distress. But first, Phil, you know, we came into July at oversold levels for high yield and with generally favorable seasonals. You know, for my seat, you know, I was looking for a little bit of a rally in the asset class, but certainly not 5.9%. August, you know, we're off to sort of a decent start again. But while we bottomed on July 5th, a month later, we're starting to look a little bit overbought. So, you know, when I think about high yield, that might mean weakening and ultimately a performance reversal as we move through the month. But distress can march to sort of its own drum now and again. So walk me through, you know, was it similar, different? What do we see in July? And, and then, you know, does it impact how you're thinking about how this cycle progresses?
0: Yes, Noel. Markets never make it easy, right? It's never a straight line one way or the other. It's always a roller coaster. And, you know, just last month, I think I was, like, getting real confident in my bearish opinion. And sure enough, you know, we get a correction to this bear uh, market. Um, You know, this was the first positive month of the year for for distressed. Um, And it followed six straight negative months. Uh, And that appears to be a limit for the distressed index. Uh, It's only had four times where it's had six straight months of negative returns. And there was in 2014, we added January of 2015 to make it seven straight months. But right after that, that was that kind of the end of the streak. So here we stopped at six. Uh, We had a strong month. This looks like a bounce to me, Uh, uh, a correction, I don't think that this changes my negative technical view. Um, in fact, when I look for bullish upswings, I'm looking for three months of positive returns. So you need to, you know, convince me over time, not just uh, magnitude, that uh, it's a, it's a real uh, lasting correction before I would feel comfortable jumping back into a high yield and distress. Um, you asked one of the differences that I noticed, um, here that was really strange. Uh, we saw in July, um, a whole bunch of new distress names that maybe really weren't all that distressed because, uh, six of our top 10 performers were issues that basically just showed up in June and were out by the end of July. Um, and, and so, uh, You know, there there was an opportunity for some sharp credit investors. Uh, But one of the things that was also interesting in July was the number of deeply distressed issuers, and we qualify that as that's yielding over twenty percent. If you're a performing note that's yielding over twenty percent, we call that deep distressed, at least uh, in the Brendel household. And
1: (laughs) well, that's the only household that (laughs) matters.
0: And um, and and so with these names this actually increased and there was an increase of numbers there and I, I thought that was kind of a divergence you know where you you actually saw the number of distressed names go down and I think it just speaks towards the bifurcation in this market if you're if you're considered a, or if there's no real red flags they're going to trade you very tight to market and you're not going to be anywhere near distressed whereas as soon as you get, out of uh, you know, some questions start being asked. You are shunned, and your notes go take steep drops. And we saw that in July with companies like Avaya, where they uh, mm-hmm. terminated their CEO and gave him a two-week notice. Uh, and at this, on the same day, they lowered EBITDA guidance by one hundred million. So, just you, you, I, I think that's that's it's a very sensitive market, and I think that's going to present some distressed investors with some. Uh, with nimble distressed investors, some uh, some real opportunities.
1: Yeah, no, it was definitely an interesting month, not least of which because the rally was really premised on sort of, uh, you know, the, the speculation that recession risk was rising. Ergo, the Fed policy was going to be forced into some sort of reversal by early 2023. Lower rates buoyed equities and then high yield and, and distressed uh, to some degree were just sort of on the coattails of the equity market. Without sort of really rationalizing what was driving the rates move, so it seems sort of, a, it was sort of a, a sort of a sort of a short term view that that obviously I think uh, you know created its own wake uh, for people to ride on. But uh, so interesting stuff. But maybe uh, before we get into some of the specific names and, and certainly the bankruptcy cases that we have to explore, uh, let's uh, Phil. Let's now bring in Eliza and the conversation that you and she uh, had with Bill earlier today.
0: Welcome, listeners. Uh, Eliza and I are thrilled to be joined today by Bill Darrow, Molas & Company's global co-head of the Capital Structure Advisory Group. He's had a distinguished career working both debtor and creditor assignments for more than 20 years, including some of the biggest restructurings that we're all aware of, Petrobras, Hertz, American Airlines, among many, many others. I've had the pleasure of working with Bill earlier on in my career and he is a top-notch professional who just understands how to solve problems uh, when debtors go get into trouble. Um, I, we're going to start this interview um, with uh, Eliza's going to uh, kick off of sort of an outlook. And uh, welcome, Bill. Welcome, Eliza. Thank you.
2: Hey you. Phil bill for better or worse things are finally getting interesting in the world of distressed debt uh, we have everything from inflation and a recession to uh, exploding gas prices and all-out war um i'd love to talk to you about what sectors you expect to generate the most work over the coming year and um whether you think that the ukraine invasion is uh, going to be a persistent impact or what you see being most relevant Sure.
3: Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, Eliza, nice to meet you and Phil. Uh, it's nice to, uh, to see your face. I guess the podcast uh, listeners can't see our faces, but, uh, as Phil said, we've known each other a very long time. Um, so, uh, you know, we're obviously in uh, somewhat of an uncharted, I, I, I some, basically uncharted territory, at least in, in anybody's, anybody who's alive's, um, uh, memory. Um, we have, very high inflation right now uh, relative to what people have experienced the last 20-ish years. Uh, I'm 57 years old. I remember when inflation and interest rates were double-digit in the 70s, and it's all people talked about. It it was all people talked about every day on the news, what's happening with inflation, what's happening with consumer prices, um, what's happening with the economy. And I think the average person doesn't, you know, they hear about it, they say, oh, it's It's an issue. They don't really realize how, um, i say the average um, financial professional, just how caustic and demoralizing high inflation is to the average consumer. Um, And, uh, you know, kind of fall of last year, we were seeing inflationary issues, but a lot of people thought it was the supply chain, COVID, uh, it's all going to work itself out. And uh, I think we're all now realizing that the inflation issue is very persistent. I saw something this morning. Saying the UK could see something like 13 to 15 percent inflation uh, coming up. This is not just a, a U.S. problem. So we have high inflation. Uh, we have a situation where most countries are at uh, the highest level of borrowings on a sovereign basis they've ever been. The United States, I think, it's uh, it's over 100 percent debt to GDP. That's sort of like deadbeat kind of uh, levels that we would typically tell other countries uh, not to be at. But the United States is there. Uh, we've obviously piled on a ton of debt during COVID to to finance uh, getting through COVID, but so did most other countries and then you compound that with uh uh, central bank uh uh i would call it recklessness uh, driving rates down so much flooding the markets with liquidity that basically anybody could borrow money it didn't really matter i mean you had to be really really bad in bad shape whether you're a country or a company to not be able to borrow money. And then, of course, we saw, you know, the three of us could come up with uh, some idea for some artificial intelligence driven something and we could go out and raise $2 million at a $10 million valuation in a safe round because people are just throwing money at everything. And, um, you know, those, those kind of bubbly kind of things, put, put, putting aside the inflation part, but central bank spending, uh, 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 national government spending, and then leading to sloppy deals, You know, it always comes home to roost. Uh, I've been on Wall Street since the late 80s, so over 30 years. And, you know, we were kind of looking at stuff. We didn't see very many defaults last year, obviously. It was very quiet. And, you know, you're seeing crazy deals getting done in terms of coupons on triple C paper, uh, terrible covenant packages from the investor. And they were just eating it up like candy. And, uh, you know, it was predictable something was going to happen, whether it was an external uh, event like the Russia invasion of Ukraine uh, or just the market getting way too hot and then leading to inflation, that uh, some shoe was going to drop. And so, uh, you know, I like to say last summer was the best summer of my career. I had I, I took a two-week vacation to Italy, first time I ever took a two-week vacation. Uh, it, you know, uh, we were fin- we'd were we finished up Hertz, we'd finished up a bunch of things. We had some things re- still working, but, um, but things were very, very slow. October last year probably was the slowest October I can remember. And, um, uh, and as we started seeing inflation ticking up, we were anticipating that there would be opportunities to get involved with companies as bonds traded down because of interest rates. And then Ukraine happened. And, uh, um, you know, you, you get to a situation where what the governments needed to have happen was not have Ukraine happen. Uh, so they could generate surpluses to pay down their debt. And now we're in a situation where governments are trying to have to deal with rising prices. And it's not just driven by uh, the central bank uh, recklessness. Now we have sort of a, a workaround situation. So um, uh, if any of you have been around someone who's had a stroke, um, many times you don't even know they've had a stroke. But let's assume you can tell because part of their face is is drooping or maybe their hand doesn't work properly. Uh, a stroke is what part of the brain basically dies. And in many cases, um, a person can work around that. Like through therapy and hard work, they can kind of rewire the brain to make that hand work again or the face work again. My father had a paralysis. He, he was a carpenter. He worked around that. It took a couple of years. He was able to go back to work. But that, that same muscle never really worked properly, but other ones took over. Well, I like to think of that analogy the same as what's going to happen in the global economy. We need global workarounds, uh, uh, around Russian energy exports. And that's kind of in, in process, but it's going to take a while. Uh, there's lots of interest now, national security interest in not being so dependent on China for everything, whether it's chips, pharmaceuticals, whatever it is. And I think there is an appropriate national focus on uh, rebuilding manufacturing in the United States. All of those will lead to higher prices. It will all be higher prices. Uh, and that doesn't even take into effect that we already have inflation. So um, we, I think, and I actually have a, a open up a presentation from a um, uh, head of Molus Asset Management, which is not owned by Molus and Company. It was spun off separately when we went public, but um, we talked to them from time to time. And um, uh, you know, the big question, you know, the Federal Reserve is trying to tighten things, and uh, the question is hard or soft landing. And uh, as Eric Felder says, uh, they've never been able to engineer really a soft landing in a situation like this. So we think the odds of a, of a real inflation, real recession, are high. But we could have, you know, we had stagflation in the in the late '70s, early '80s. So we had in- high inflation and low growth, and we could see that again. And that is a horrible place to be. So what does that mean for re- you know kind of restructuring? It means that. Um, Uh, it'd be harder to borrow money. Uh, Valuation multiples will come down, leverage multiples will come down, interest rates will go up, uh, and companies are going to have to do a lot of work on their balance sheets. Some cases, minor surgery, little nip-tuck here and there. Other cases, it might be, you know, limb uh, amputations.
2: Wow. And I mean, I, I imagine also we'll see some people cease to exist because, you know, it's undeniable that the era of low leverage has led to just a lot of companies limping along who might not have needed to be there. Do you think that's going to be a significant element?
3: A- absolutely. Some companies, so some companies just created recently. I, I had dinner last night with um, uh, a family member who runs a business. He, he He's built this business over 30 plus years. Uh, it's a great business. They uh, do electronic locks for lockers. Um, and um, he said there's a business that started up is sort of doing a similar thing, for for homes and at one point it had a billion dollar valuation um and uh uh you know the question is like well that company even exists going forward um i think there's a lot of companies that are just going to go away probably a, a lot of the the ones that were started recently um i by the way i heard a statistic the other day that um uh instagram influencers now had to get real jobs because they're not making Oh jobs.
2: no, not that.
3: So sad. So sad for those people. <laughs> um uh, I, I can't remember the specifics but uh, you know, it reminds me of the what I used to call the Paris Hilton economy. Uh Phil, you remember that uh, kind of before the financial crisis, you know, like 0203 like what was Paris Hilton? What did she do to become so famous, right? Right. Uh, right. but you know, sort of like Uh, people could take out second mortgages on their homes because their housing home prices going up and they could buy a bass boat and they could go buy a condo in vegas and you know again money was so easy to get and you and and real estate was going up and you could take out all kinds of you know credit instruments and people were just living way beyond uh you know their normal kind of economic means but everything was going up and uh and uh, you know it feels like the last couple years been very similar to that you know all the Uh, people, you know, day trading all day long on Robinhood and places like that, Um, and then using leverage or these people, I think you're going to want to talk about crypto at some point, but people who are borrowing money to buy crypto, Mm. uh, you know, a wildly, what has been a wildly uh, uh, volatile instrument itself, you you know, what's the old line? Uh, Those who... Those who do not remember history are damned to repeat it or something like that.
2: Yeah, that is brutal. I mean, well, speaking just briefly of crypto, I've I've been really curious about as we see some of these crypto companies finally tip into bankruptcy or otherwise into distress, what is your impression of the appetite, if there is any, on behalf of distressed investors um to to come in with any sort of rescue financing or or to take over the assets because i've been thinking about how typically they are really the last line of um, opportunity there but i so far they don't seem to be quite having the same interest it's like the one asset they don't want to touch
3: yeah so um i I think there are people who are sniffing around uh we are involved in in one crypto case uh uh i'm not working on it so like Sort of a, a full disclosure. I'm not working on it, and I'm not an expert in crypto. Uh, I do, uh, I, you know, like a lot of things. Whether it was the dot com thing uh, in the late '90s, or the telecom uh, explosion, and then and then blow up explosion in terms of financing and all kinds of companies. Uh, there probably will be some place in the world for uh, uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, I, I would think that governments are going to want to be more but, you know, regulating them uh, uh, both from a consumer don't lose all your money perspective, uh, like we did with uh, with the banks and with Wall Street after the Great Depression, um, as well as uh, just the, the lack of, of transparency. I think it's sort of an it's effectively an opportunity for governments to kind of step in um, and, and do that. Personally, I, I own a little bit of uh, of. Uh, uh, Bitcoin through an ETF thing, but I sort of did it because everyone said you have to own something. Uh, but I still don't quite, I, I understand that the blockchain technology is this sort of Uber um, safe uh, way of doing things. And Molus has just launched a blockchain effort, which is, you know, not just focus on, on cryptocurrencies. It's blockchain being used for all kinds of things. Um, I'm an undergraduate liberal arts major so I am not a computer scientist. Um uh but I think look there's going to be a shakeout like in like in everything consolidation probably and maybe there'll be you know uh, a handful of uh, of crypto lenders that are uh, maybe they'll be regulated and maybe um uh maybe they will uh you know kind of lessons learned, right customers can, the, the 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 depositors or or their clients uh the customer agreements will will be set up in a way that's more uh, favorable. It reminds me in some ways back to uh, when right before the financial crisis, uh, most people thought when they had money in a bank that that was their money and they didn't realize that they're actually a creditor of a bank in a normal deposit uh, dynamic. And same thing uh, in, in many cases in um, in securities accounts. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are a number of people, uh, my recollections, who got stuck, um, you know, in Lehman uh, because they kind of had the wrong type of account. Um, and, you know, that was sort of caveat after they should have they should have looked into it. I, I remember around that time, um, uh, a lawyer at Paul Weiss was telling me about the, you know, kind of the bank arrangement. And I call it Ken Mollis. And I said, how much money do we have in the bank? And this is, you know, the firm was only a couple of years old. And we had like $80 million in the bank. And I said, where do we keep it? And I won't say which bank, but. You know, kept yeah. in a certain bank. And I said, well, you know, that bank could go down. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. And uh, we need to have a, a client trust account, not a deposit account. And so I got on the phone with our CFO or controller. And ultimately, he got on the phone with our bank representative. And and I had an email uh, kind of describing what it's supposed to be. And he says, oh, yeah, the guy says that we have that. And I said, no, no, no. <laughs> Remember, the lawyer says that we're supposed to get the actual agreement and look at it and read it. And it turns out we didn't have the appropriate one. We had a deposit account and we, you know, you know we're pretty, we're financial people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, luckily it was never really necessary, but we converted it to a trust account.
2: Wow. Yeah. But the, it's like people, don't... people don't
3: really read their agreements. Most people don't really know what they have. And I think people gen gen uh, tend to generally expect the government, like, oh, well, they couldn't do that because that wouldn't be legal you know um and they overlay like uh oh it's a bank fdic they probably said no fdic but they kind of ignored that
2: yeah yeah it's it's a, been a big shock for a lot of people i think and the echoes from lehman and the banking crisis are stark um
0: bill you- the one uh, sorry to interrupt with liz i do know well, you you just inspired me um one of the things that drives me crazy like because i've been taking a look at voyager and celsius and these recent crypto bankruptcies and you they're 50 page user agreements and we know that just generally speaking investors and this goes for institutional investors as well not everyone's going through with a fine tooth you know comb and 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 figuring out, you know, where their risks are and that sort of thing. And it does seem to me that regulators, uh, especially for crypto, but regulators have been focused solely on disclosure. Disclose it and you're fine. It's almost gotten to the point where you could put into a document, we're disclosing that this is a Ponzi scheme and like, (laughs) you you know, that makes it okay. Absolutely. And it's, it's the vacuum of real regulation, and I think that's a resource problem as well. But, you know, just any thoughts on that whole concept that, like, investors—and what frightens me is I see GWG Holdings, which is also one where a lot of people got into these liquidity bonds for this life insurance policy portfolios, and you see these letters to the docket. And and as a bankruptcy professional, it must break your heart to, like, kind of see that when you see consumers actually led down that road. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously
3: institutional investors have access to top flight lawyers who can look at those agreements and the average individual uh, can't afford that. They're putting $1,000 in, $5,000 in. They're not gonna go hire a lawyer for $5,000 to to review a 50 page agreement. Um, uh, you know, I'm not a financial regulatory expert, but uh, my, my dad uh, was born in, uh, he's not alive anymore, born in 1924. So he lived through the Great Depression, and um, you know, so much of the uh, safety net around you know savings and and the financial world was kind of created then. Um, and uh, but you know, pre pre the uh, Securities Exchange Act, I, I think companies could kind of say almost whatever they wanted to get people to invest. And uh, it, it does seem that there there should be. You know, in, in, in general, I, I agree with you, Phil. Like, just putting it in the document is probably not necessarily, you know, enough. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what, uh, what what the SEC and, and, and others uh, try to do. I, I expect that you're going to see proposals for more stricter, um, uh, you know, regulation, whether that's disclosure or prohibitions or, or, or requirements,
2: Well, speaking of user agreements or contracts that don't necessarily get read thoroughly, or if they do, they're not (laughs) fully understood or or realized, um, I want to talk about the phenomenon of these creditor battles, creditor-on-creditor violence, as we call it, and really more specifically or more inherently the asset transfers, drop-downs, spin-outs that have been happening that are, you know, spark outrage and backlash but are perfectly legal according to the agreements so one of the things phil and i have been talking about is <clears throat> is uh, this really new um and of course to some degree similar uh, events have been around for a long time so what's your perspective on how new this trend or phenomenon is and and what it has it changed in what ways and um who really ends up winning and losing in the long run?
3: Sure, so, you know, look, uh, um, exchange offers for for bonds, uh, you know, has been around since the 80s in Drexel. You know, when when God created Drexel, God also created high yield bonds, and, and that's, you know, whether God created exchange offers at that moment in time, because he had to figure out a way to fix them. So, uh, you know, it's really operating under um, the um, tender offer rules. Uh, from a bond perspective. And loans didn't really get impacted because loans were not such a big part of the capital structure back then in the 80s and 90s. So the technology really does go back to Drexel and, and, and bond exchange technology. And, you know, you're usually doing it to try to avoid a bankruptcy, um, whether it's pushing out of maturity or, or turning off interest or something like that. And, you know, there are provisions that you can... Change with a simple majority vote in the indenture. There are some things that require 100, percent and there's other things, to your point, Eliza, that uh, seem uh, permitted uh, under the uh, documents. And you know, the technology has gotten you know better, better, better. I mean, this is something that we do a lot of. You know, we like to. Uh, we're very proud of the fact that mo- mo- more than half of our company side engagements are done totally out of court. We run our own exchange offers. We do exchange offers. We're the dealer manager. None of our competitors really do that of the boutique firms. Um, So, you know, from my perspective, if I'm advising a company, uh, you know, it's usually uh, because there's an issue, right? You have an upcoming maturity. um, Maybe you have a covenant issue. uh, Or, like we're seeing right now, there's just a bunch of discount in the bonds. And so that maybe it's opportunistic to capture some discount. Um, And, you know, typically we would run an exchange offer, and it's you know, it may be you know, any and all. Hey, you want to come in? Come in, great. But we don't need anybody to come in. You kind of create a, um, you know, a bit of a psychological game for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other cases, you need a certain amount to come in, uh, either because of that simple majority or or because you need it to just to get down the road. So we we, we advised iHeart for years before the big restructuring happened, and we did a whole bunch of things, consent solicitations to open up an indenture uh, to then allow us to issue some more debt and then getting some, you know, near dated debt to exchange into a new piece of paper to basically kick the can down the road. Um, so I, I, I personally don't see anything, you know, wrong with with that as a if you're sort of trying to accomplish goals, um, What's really issue, I think, where you're alluding to is, um, you know, it used to be back. When I first met Phil, if you were a bondholder in a you know ten percent senior unsecured bond, that was kind of your only position in the capital structure, uh, and everybody kind of worked together in that tranche. Uh, it was sort of all for one, one for all. Um, and uh, so, if there was a, an ad hoc committee of maybe three or four institutions, they looked out for everybody else. You know, everybody gets treated the same way. Uh, and as time has gone by. You see more and more where ad hoc groups, uh, it's more sort of uh, my old colleague, you may remember him, Phil, Richard Nevins, used to say, creative finance is done at the expense of the person not in the room uh, or not at the table. Um, and there's another uh, great phrase, um, the head of the uh, UAW, I think, used to say this. Added, sorry, now the autoworkers, if, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Um, and so what you see now is ad hoc groups forming uh, and to it's almost like the old uh, men's clubs, you know, you could only be a member if you were, uh, you know, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, uh, no Catholics, no Jews, no women, no black people. Um, you know, sort of like, OK, we're going to form an ad hoc group and we're going to negotiate with the company and only we get the goodies. And, you you know, um, you build in discounts and fees and all kinds of things like that. And um, uh, so you've you've seen that that dynamic. uh probably the last uh, you know, four or five years. And what's 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 gone even farther now is uh, now there's not even any sort of loyalty to your ad hoc group. So you might have an ad hoc group with four or five institutions. And while someone's on that ad hoc group, they're kind of working behind the scenes to cut their own special deal. They might jump off that group and form a new group. Um, I, I don't think there's any professional who looks at that and says, wow, that's great. <laughs> we, we love that happening other than it creates more more seats possibly for the professionals to work on, but mm-hmm. it is um I, I don't think it's a positive development for for the industry in general uh I think it breeds distrust um you know if if there's sort of an assumption we we all formed a group together, we interviewed lawyers, we interviewed we hired people, and then for you to jump off that committee and go work against me. Some new committee you formed, I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's really going to lead to distrust. Now, maybe the answer is people have to sign real cooperation agreements at the outset, uh, mm-hmm. saying you, know, you can't go do that. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. that will be, um, what happens. But I think a big part of the reason for that is it's been really hard to generate good returns in the distress world. <clears throat> so how do you do it? You don't do it by buying the right security. You do it by buying a security to then you know, it used to be, I mean, fellow, you you buy security security, say, look, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna pay forty cents for it, I'm gonna get sixty cents. Now it's I'm gonna pay forty cents for it, it maybe we're thirty eight cents. But if I can figure out a way to write a new money check, and you know, get discounts and fees, that all in together is gonna be a great investment. Um, I think it's mostly a byproduct of there not being great investment opportunities, and hopefully, um, you know, as we see the credit markets being extremely less uh, less um, accommodative people can make money the old-fashioned way, which is by buying the right security. Oh.
2: And that's such a good point about just the <clears throat> presence in multiple tranches of debt on, on behalf of an in, individual investor or firm contributing to this. Um, sorry, Phil, I just quickly want to ask, is there any brief explanation you can give for how that particularly developed? You know, instead of someone having one position... They're all over the capital structure.
3: Um, I mean, it, I, I can remember it starting in the 90s when I was at Channing and Company, and there was a big institution that, I won't say who, uh, it seemed like their strategy was <clears throat> they would own, you know, 30, 40% of kind of the real fulcrum, uh, or what they thought was the fulcrum, but then they would buy sort of a blocking position in the piece below that to sort of ensure that the junior piece couldn't really make something happen. Uh, it didn't, it wasn't a bulletproof strategy, but, um, uh, so I think it's, it's been percolating for a while. Um, and I think it's, you know, these are many times they're hedge funds. They're hedging their bets. Uh, and in some cases it's, look, I'm going to buy the first lien and the second lien and the unsecured. I don't really know. I want to be, I want to own this, uh, somehow. And if I buy just the first lien. If, you know, maybe trading at six and you're, I know you want to talk about Hertz at some point, Hertz is a perfect example. If you bought the first lien around the filing at 60 cents, you probably thought that was going to be the thing that owns the company. And if you just stayed in the first lien, you got refinanced. Secondly, refinanced. And, you know, the bonds, the unsecured bonds really thought that they were going to be the fulcrum and we kind of know the outcome there. So I, I think it's, you know, it's a legitimate strategy if it's if it's really I'm just trying to play where the fulcrum might be.
0: Um, uh, but it, it becomes very difficult when you're on the company side trying to figure out who's doing what and why. That's that it's fascinating. Uh, You know, one of the things that I know was in vogue maybe 10 years ago, five to 10 years ago is CDS, you know, that you'd be playing CDS. Um, I always thought the single name CDS, the liquidity would dry up because that product was always like kind of troubled and, you know, there, there was, it just invited gamesmanship. Uh, what, have you seen that continue to be a theme is that pe- people positioned via cds or is it or is it truly kind of like um an index thing and you know broad market sort of thing that really isn't playing much of a role these days
3: so it doesn't seem that cds we don't talk about cds in the way that we used to talk about it as sort of being like the cynic one on issue uh for something and so um I'm not an expert in regulation. My, my, my understanding is, is that, uh, much, much of the post financial crisis, um, uh, regulation tightened up, uh, the CDS world in general. And obviously we had a, you know, AIG and other blowups that, that seemed to be very CDS heavy. I, I can remember doing, uh, putting on a, a three day capital markets seminar for bankruptcy judges and a big topic was CDS and, you know, we had some cds traders uh so you know it's still a thing you know people still look at the cds auction uh but it doesn't seem to drive uh, behavior um and be as big a player as it was say in you know 06 07 08 09 i can remember um working with a um a, a national home builder in i don't know 2009 2010 and uh so the regulation had it all worked its way through, and people were um, – the general assumption was people had heavy CDS positions on. And so they were not going to um, – they weren't going to agree to do a bond exchange uh, uh, because uh, it wasn't going to trigger the CDS. And they wanted to get – if they're going to do something, they want the CDS to you know, trigger. So people said, well, your only alternative is you know, basically bankruptcy. You're basically forcing these companies to go into bankruptcy we came up with a a very clever solution to that. That wasn't without risk. Um, but we, we very rarely, um, come across situations where we're constrained by CDS the way that we were in, you know, nine,
0: 10, 11. Interesting. Yeah. That, that that was one part of the creditor violence world that I am glad not to be seeing too much of these days. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Um, I, I know time is you know t- short, so I'm going to try and uh, jump into uh, Hertz here because I think this was one of the most remarkable outcomes that I've seen. And I can point to a number of interesting features about the case. Uh, one was when it first went in, I thought it was a horror show. Um, you know, it really looked like there would be very little going concern value for unsecured note holders when it initially went in. And I was thinking about how these people who were secured by the autos are going to like get their recovery. Um, but by the end, and actually it started happening at the turn of the year, um, and at least in my mind, uh, where you could potentially see ways in which you know the unsecureds could get value the, the, just the used car market was so tremendous but one of the things that you did as debtors advisor and you know the, I, I congratulate the debtors board in general was um you put together a deal and then you went to an auction uh framework and the recovery for shareholders i took a look yesterday shareholders old Hertz shareholders if you just held on to whatever you were given you would be worth 11.50 a share today and when i think about that outcome and all the possible outcomes that you could have had if like it rushed out of bankruptcy and You know, it was just a magnificent job. I think Judge Walrath actually said it was the best outcome that she's seen from a bankruptcy. And, you know, I just one of the things that I thought was most interesting with all the financial buyers that you had there, Bill, you managed to keep them into two separate bidding groups. And I know that was no small feat because I know also financial buyers, they're sophisticated as hell. And combining those groups must have been something that you were fearful of. And if you could just like, I'm going to let you go now. And if sure. anything there strikes a chord. Yeah.
3: So um, sometimes, sometimes, you know, it's so you better be lucky than smart. Uh, we made some decisions that in retrospect worked uh, and worked well. Um, but go back to the beginning. Like you said, we were we, we weren't Sure. You know, their revenue was off 75 80%. Uh we were advising uh United Airlines too, uh airline revenue off 100% in some cases. some cases, some months uh airlines were negative revenue. they giving more money back than they were taking in uh <clears throat> deposits. So, it was you know, very hard to see beyond uh, just how how dark and ugly the world was then. Um you know, we have pictures of all the all of our cars parked at you know, City Field and you know, Miami Dolphin Stadium and uh, you know, thousands of vehicles as parked places. And um, uh, it's hard for us to even truly remember just how, how ugly those time periods were. And you know, we're trying to figure out where we're gonna be and, and um and we knew we wanted to try to get out of bankruptcy before June of twenty twenty one because uh we need we, we wanted to we we needed to place our car orders every year and we wanted to have a strong balance sheet. And so, um, you know, we worked with the company, come up with basically three scenarios. There was sort of the base case scenario, which, uh, you know, sort of assumed a recovery. Uh, there was an upside case. Uh, and then there was the lower for longer case. Uh, basically, this is all gonna keep going. Um, and I think the peak number of vehicles like 800,000, something like that. And lower for longer, you know, you would have a smaller fleet. Uh, but but we had this pressure in the beginning because, uh, you know, our securitization lenders wanted to get paid. The collateral is going down in value. Uh, so we had this pressure to, we, and we weren't using the vehicles, So why are we going to keep the, the cars? But it's just like we talk about the crypto or any other, you know, security that goes down in value and you borrow money against it. You're going to start losing money on selling these vehicles. Um, and so it was, it was really kind of a, a crazy environment where, we knew we needed to reduce the fleet, but we weren't able to sell the cars at great prices at the very beginning. Uh, and then this weird thing happened, uh, partly probably, probably, again, because central bank liquidity is also used car prices are going up. But in that beginning phase, you know, our ABS lenders hated us. They didn't trust us. They didn't want to get stuck holding the bag, you know, $10 billion of loans against $5 billion of cars. Uh, we didn't want to pay them anything. So they said, well, then sell cars. They said, well, if we sell all of our cars how do we recover? You know, it was just, it was a, it was a wild, uh, dynamic, um, you know, on calls until midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And, um, uh, but we had some, some core principles, uh, from the, from the early stage. And, uh, it was really, you know, Tom Laurie and I kind of ham and egg it. Uh, one was we wanted the company to come out with a good balance sheet. Um, we're going to do everything we could to make that happen. A better balance sheet than what it had pre-bankruptcy. And pre-bankruptcy, it was levered about two times more than Avis, it's kind of the big uh, you know, public uh, comp. Um, and we wanted to come out at Avis or better. We wanted to position this company to be successful, um, number one. Number two, well, so a lot of that, we knew we were going to re- need to raise a bunch of money to do that. We couldn't just convert debt to equity. We could try, but we thought better strategy is to go to find some really big checkbooks. Uh, to to finance it, so we in our minds we needed to raise a couple billion of equity. You know we, you know maybe it, maybe it's the first lane that's the fulcrum, but you know we just said we, we need to raise a couple billion of equity to get us down to that number because otherwise we're going to have this food fight between the typical restructuring food fight where you end up with too much debt, right? You have more debt than you're comparable because you know you're negotiating with this group of credit and the the lowest common denominator means, means more debt. Um, so we, we said that, um, and we started an outreach in, I think it was the late fall of 2020. Um, and, uh, uh, I don't know if I should go into the, the, the groups, but we, we, we had a couple, you know, private equity ish groups, you know, one being Centerbridge Warburg and, uh, and then Tom Dundon, uh, they may have had another, an no, that was the, the group. And then. On the other side, um, Nighthead and Sotaris, And they each kind of offered different things, you know. Uh, it's like two ice cream stores, but they're not the same brand. So, you know, you might get a couple different kinds of ice cream from one than the other. Um, you know, neither one was sort of like so obviously superior in all respects. Um, uh, and then, of course, we had our bondholders. Tom and I had both been through Delphi. Tom represented uh, Appaloosa. Uh, I represented the creditors committee and we've still got the scars on our back from Delphi. Um, and uh, one thing, you know, we learned a couple things out of it. One was make sure you got the money. Have, don't, don't assume the money will be there when you're ready to go, you know, come out of bankruptcy. And so we were very focused on getting committed capital as early as possible. We also uh, didn't want to be in a dynamic and this is why we sort of didn't just embrace the bondholder group, which they thought we should have. Uh, where you know in order to to get a deal you need 25 people to say yes um uh, so what happens if so as the market's going well like oh everybody wants to write a check wants to write what happens if the market trades off again you know that if we we've only talked to our bondholders let's say that you know five of them say oh sorry uh the the vix is down the this is down i i'm out so then you got to put the whole thing back together again and so we said we don't really want to do that we want to have you know, some big institutions who their job is to write big checks who are at the table so that if worse came to worse and the market fell apart again, uh, we could still get the company out of bankruptcy with a, you know, Warburg's uh, Cerberus, sorry, Warburg Center Bridge or a Sertari's uh, Nighthead, maybe at lower valuations, but we'd still get that company out of bankruptcy. So that was kind of our our, our push, and we wanted to play people off, uh, off uh, against each other. And then as the market kept getting better and better and people wanted to put money to work, that really played to our to our advantage that we were able to, and this next piece was, was um, I mean, Tom had some really brilliant ideas. Uh, one was if you want to play in the auction, you can't object to the results of the auction. Uh, like, you're either in or you're out. And so we got everyone to agree to that. And, um, Uh, And we designed the capital structure. We said, this is what it's going to be. So, you know, here's the rules to participate. is what it's going to be. And people played along. Um, uh, You know, at the end of the day, the bondholder group really, really wanted to own the company. And uh, I I think this, you know, having so many people in that group uh, was made it difficult to manage and they couldn't be as um, as nimble at the auction. Um, as, uh, you know, the Nighthead Sotaris and Apollo came in group because it was just three institutions and they all had their representatives there physically in the room. Um, you know, they were able to, to pivot, uh, better. But, uh, at the end of the day, kind of didn't really matter because, um, we paid off our, our bonds in, in full. And to your point, Phil, at the time, I think we thought that the value to the, I'm not going to remember exactly, but I, I, I think we had like a hundred. I think we thought it was like a billion dollars of value going to the shareholders. So maybe that was um, five bucks a share, six bucks, a share, something like that. I, I can't remember. But uh, uh, I mean, it was a pretty remarkable. And we did some like, I think we raised $20 billion throughout the bankruptcy case. Uh, we did the first ever public equity offering of a company in bankruptcy,
0: You know, the, the Hertz ATM. That was uh, Ken Mullis' idea. Um, that that was amazing because like people were buying. I mean, some of those shares were sold. I think it was like twenty three right. million was raised, right. and it's like yeah. those those shares ended up being a home run that you sold to right. them. I mean, right? Yeah, I think we I think we sold them around
3: three bucks or two and a half bucks something like that. And uh, it was bizarre uh, in many ways. Yeah, I mean, I look, I I um I'm not a lawyer, so it means I'm not a securities lawyer. But so you know, the SEC kind of. My understanding is kind of call up and said, what are you doing? Even though someone had asked them on a no-names basis if it was okay. So they didn't actually say stop, but I guess when they call and ask the kind of questions, you're supposed to stop. But um, what's crazy about that to me is essentially the SEC was saying, we would be okay if you sold shares six months before the bankruptcy, but not when you're in bankruptcy when, like, literally all of your dirty laundry is out there, like, you're in bankruptcy. If someone wants yeah. to buy your shares, like, you should let them buy your shares.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great okay. point. It's kind of. And... You, you, no, go ahead. Yo, you get something like, I mean, it, it, you're seeing some of the same dynamic in Revlon. And actually, I like Revlon's one where I like it wouldn't surprise me. That's a company that's been held mm-hmm. up away from the market for 37 years. That if, like, Maybe a strategic might be interested in it. And like yeah. you could see you could I, I, I now look, I, I, you know, I've seen equity do well in bankruptcy and I've seen it come out, you know, like, you know, it happens, but it's very rare and right. it doesn't happen a lot. And, and so it's uh, one of those things that I'd say you've got to be very lucky and things have to work out and you have to have like Bill Darrow as the financial advisor coming up with an auction structure <laughs> that is really just geared towards getting value to the shareholders. I thought the board did a great job there. I mean, that was that was amazing to me. Well, I'll tell you this. Um, when we were starting the kind of negotiating with the, the
3: different proponents, I think the proposals we got were like the 45 to 50 cents in the dollar range from the bondholder group from the Centerbridge group and from the nighthead star group, something, something like that cuz that's around where the bonds were trading and i can remember having a being at a i think it was a dinner or at least it was a call and um we were going to go back uh to everybody and say we want 70 cents of the dollar and uh people thought that that was just a crazy ask like oh my god you guys are insane you'll never get it but sure go ahead and ask for it Um, And, look, I thought it was a pretty aggressive ask. Obviously, we ended up at 100 cents. um, But I can remember also Vincent uh, Trary. He wasn't the chair of the board. I think he was chair of the uh, uh, audit committee. uh, But, you know, used to work with Carl Icahn. I mean, very experienced, um, distressed by, remember him saying that, that, you know, inimitable Vince voice, you know, I want to get something for the shareholders. Um, And, you know, Carl, he'd been put on the board by Carl Icahn. Carl used to own 40-ish percent. And Carl was out. He'd sold, uh, so he wasn't doing it for Carl. He was just doing it for the shareholders. And um, the nice thing was is that uh, we were all aligned on that. You know, was uh, how do we try to drive something that really creates value? You know, the standard operating procedure in restructurings today, kind of the lazy approach by uh, the professionals, is oh, we're just gonna we're gonna embrace the first liens, or we're gonna embrace the second liens, or the you know the sort of path. I'm, we're going to do a deal with them. We're going to put it through, and then you know they can fight us on valuation. But that's what we're going to do. It's not really how do I get as much value for everybody. And we really, it wasn't just Tom, uh, Lori, and Dara. It was you know members of the board led by Vince. We really wanted to try to make the pie as big as we possibly could to try to get something to shareholders. Um, and I think that's a you know, public company. It's the right thing to do. That's what you should be doing when you're advising uh, a, a public company is instead of sort of the path of least resistance or you know what's going to get me out uh, is design a strategy uh,
0: that will lead to the greatest recovery for the largest number of, of uh, classes no you, you it was a remarkable job and uh, you know as you talk about it when you went back at 70 usually the quid pro quo for getting that deal at 70 is it's just us. We get the deal. It's certainty. You know, and you guys kept having, you te- you brought everyone along and you brought them along and, you know, you you can't make big go- jumps because then people will walk away and you just kind of brought them along the whole way. It was it. Was, well,
3: look, we also had a rising market, right? So yeah. uh, if the market had, had traded off, we might have been stuck at 70 or had to go back to 55. Uh, but we had, we had the benefit. So in that In that particular circumstance, I guess I will thank the Federal Reserve uh, because, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, them pushing down interest rates, you know, force people to go into more risky classes.
0: Yeah, no, that that was tremendous. Um,
2: And Bill, you know, you just said, you just brought up Revlon, and I was going to ask the same thing. And in the the context of, Bill, do you think that the SEC... um, is chastened at all uh having seen the outcome and maybe a little bit i don't know if chastened might be a too far of a word but um would they necessarily put the kibosh on it again if another uh bankrupt company for instance revlon were to try to raise a little cash through it at equity issuance that people are clamoring for
3: um I like i think it depends on on who the chair of the sec is and uh and you know the particular people um uh, I think it's going to happen and I, I hope that we're the ones to do it. I do I mean Revlon. I, mean, I think it's going to happen. So to me, there's no legitimate reason why you shouldn't be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and the banks who kind of contemplates it because the only way you're allowed to do super priority priming is if there's no other capital available. So there's sort of this presumption that there's going to be lower ranking capital, uh, available. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know we had said in our in our final we want to do up to a billion dollars of equity if we had been successful uh unclear if there was that much demand but if we'd been successful we would have I don't think have ever had to raise our dip uh, uh-huh. and it would have been a very different dynamic hard to say we would have had the same kind of outcome because we still would have needed big big checks to come in mm-hmm. um but uh, uh i I think it's gonna happen uh, Eliza we just got to find you know you need uh, 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 lawyers who are willing to kind of push the envelope a bit, and um, I mean, look, we should probably just go down and talk to whoever the people were at the SEC and kind of walk them through hers and say,
0: like you said, like, you see, <laughs> that's a pretty uh, yeah. pretty good case Let's study, one for one. Right. <laughs> well, by the way, you, I know you want to talk about American Airlines at some
3: point. Uh, yeah, we represent the creditors there, but uh, shareholders through the strategy we engineered the merger with U.S. Air. I think creditors end up with like $10 billion of value or something like it, some crazy big number. Um, so it, it, to your point, Phil, usually when a company goes into bankruptcy, the equity gets significantly, if not completely wiped out. Uh, but it's not by no means a certainty.
0: No, the, the, the longer you are in distress, the more you realize there's very few certainties. It's, it, it I've seen things go wild. Um, Speaking about American, I just I'm going to do this briefly because I know time is uh, running short. Uh, American received nine billion dollars free and clear during the pandemic to, you know, to help it. The industry received a ton of, uh, you know, billions, tens of billions of dollars. Is that a one timer? Do, what do you think? Like, I mean, I, I'm sure when you let, did American Airlines, the restructuring, it would have been nice if uh, U, U.S. Uncle Sam was ready to, like, hand over cash free and clear. Um, what do you think? of? The, do you think there's any paradigm shift? Oh, I, I kind of attribute they got great lobbying in Washington, but it's... It, I, just your thoughts yeah. it, it, so um i mean look it's it's very analogous to the financial uh uh bailout
3: uh i'm i'm friendly with a number of um, members of, of the house of representatives and uh, a few senators and i remember talking to I'm trying to remember who was that uh member of congress or, or a senator but early on uh and i said uh you know, it was, like, it was very early in COVID and, they, you know, like the first their first relief bill was like one hundred million dollars or something like that. Hundred, You know, it, was, it wasn't a big number. And I said, uh, oh, I, I can't remember. They, they they passed something and they said, oh, you know, uh, you know, the, the TARP was only nine hundred billion dollars. And we just did something is one point one trillion. I said, which you're not understanding is that TARP was only one piece of all of the firepower that we put behind the financial system. Um, and I remember doing this math when you added up all the guarantees of bank deposits, the Federal Reserve did, uh, TALF, TARP, all the programs. It was something like $14 trillion of firepower that was put behind the system. And GDP was about $14 trillion. So it was about one times GDP. And I said, uh, you know, we've got to have never been in a situation in my life where every company, every business is down, you know, 30 percent at least and some, you know, 100 percent. I said, you're going to have to do a much bigger number. You know, if GDP now is, I don't know, it's like 19 or 20 trillion. I said, I think you're going to have to do, you know, the, the, the money you're going to have to put into this. If you assume that GDP has been cut by 30%, you're going to have to fill that hole. It's going to be six or seven or eight or nine, you know, whatever, right? whatever the numbers ended up being. Uh, and I ended up being pretty right in terms of the, the aggregate. Um, to, to your question about, so should the airlines have been or, or, you know, gotten bailed out? I remember getting an email from a senator. Uh, I won't say who, uh, I knew him before he was a senator. Uh, and actually he'd been on a company that we were structured. That's how I got to know him. Um, and he said, um, shouldn't we just let the companies go bankrupt and then the creditors will own it? And the issue was not their capital structure, who was gonna own it, the issue was just liquidity. Um, uh, there was just no liquidity. I said, well, you know, no, you, you shouldn't do that. If you want them to fire all their employees, well, that would be, you know, that would be a good strategy. But if your goal is to to maintain employment levels, so people still have money coming in, uh, you're going to have to figure out a way to um, uh, to bail out the airlines. I mean, they, they were the tip of the spear, right? I mean, I can't think of, you know, we we advised Expedia early on in the crisis. We're involved with United for, um, I mean, the the COVID crisis. United from I don't know May ish uh, until uh, end of last year. A bunch of different things um and uh you know hertz was off 75 80 but airlines like nobody was flying right and so uh, it wasn't their fault that COVID happened and um sure they could have gone bankrupt and someone else would have owned them uh, but in the meantime you would have lost hundreds of thousands of jobs and remember at least from a democrat perspective uh most of those are union jobs Uh, so there's lots of pressure on the Democrat side. And then, um, you know, on the, um, on the Republican side, those were big businesses. So you kind of had a confluence of, uh, of events. Um, but, you know, I don't know, uh, how your, uh, your organization fared from a, uh, PPP perspective, whether you received any money or, or tried to get any money or not. Uh, I don't, I don't think MOLIS applied for or, or would have gotten any, but, you know, so many my kids school got P.P.V. money the boy scouts of new york got P.P.V. money uh, it really filled filled a a necessary hole um sorry it was a necessary uh uh tool i think to fill holes um i do think that there was some significant sloppiness in in the program where you know there are a number of companies i think that took in money but didn't necessarily keep their payroll going the same same way fascinating so i think
0: your question was around the, the pension is that right oh yeah or, originally like one of the topics i have is how should uh, you know note holders view pension when they're going into a workout and there's massive pension how did the right. debtors view it and then also how note holders and you know my, my i've always treated pension as like it's more or less a, a secured claim unless a company really just can't function with it the way it was sized and american i actually thought when american went in it was going to crystallize that and deal with it um well that was that was their plan the company's
3: plan was and the bonds were trading at 30 cents of the dollar i think when it filed or after it filed um the company's plan was to terminate the the pension and so you know get out from under that and uh, that would have created i think the total claims i've got it here in american airlines was 17 billion dollars and i can't remember if that included uh, factoring in a potential pension uh, uh crystallization, but whatever you think the number is the PBGC always makes it a bigger number right uh, and um and so that would have had an incredibly uh, destructive impact on other creditor recoveries and um uh and of course the the unions didn't want to see the pensions terminated because uh, you know, if you're a pilot, maybe you have a pension of $100,000 and the PBGC uh, cap is like 60 or something like that. Um, and so, uh, we, our first effort on behalf of the, for the creditors committee, we had the PBGC on the committee, the three unions, three bondholders and two trade, HP and Boeing was stop this pension termination effort. And, uh, what we came up with was a pension freeze and, um, uh, the company court said, well, you can't do that. It's not allowed under the regulations. And I think this was, uh, during the Obama administration. So you had a labor friendly administration. We said, well, I think, well, somebody said, why don't we go talk to treasury? And so we got a special treasury ruling that allowed us to freeze the pension. It took some other things had to get done, but that was, uh, really led initially by the creditors committee's lawyers and the lawyer uh for the pilots um from uh, Steptoe and Johnson uh, Phil Agusti um really working and he's based in Washington really working the uh, Washington angles to um to get that approved and that became kind of like the initial uh piece um obviously we don't see that many that many pensions in in the world today uh but um uh, you know what typically happens is people get around the issue by having lots of secured debt and the secured debt comes out first. Um, uh, it'll be interesting post COVID with all these companies that have done refinancings with unsecured paper. Uh, if they start come start getting in trouble uh, and they and they haven't done a bunch of exchange offers to secure up the balance sheet, uh, what that will look like, Phil? Um, you might we might be back to the future where we have a bunch of you know unsecured claims in a bankruptcy case and a big pension that some people would like to terminate. And some people may not.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. Bill, do you have any final thoughts, words, or like, uh, I, I know I'm, we're both uh, immensely grateful for you to take an hour of your time and, uh, you know, really spend with us. And this has been a fascinating conversation.
3: No, it's, uh, thank you for having me. My, my only, I guess, final parting words would be is, uh, uh, you know, put your... Uh, Put your helmet and goggles on because i i think we're going to have uh uh i i think we're going to have a a pretty active uh restructuring cycle uh it's already starting we're seeing kind of the the weakest companies you know you know falling filing for bankruptcy uh and um uh, the set the federal bank the, the federal reserve and central banks cannot allow inflation to get out of control Uh, I remember as a kid when inflation was out of control, when mortgage rates were double digit. My first house I bought, uh, was in 1993 in Santa Monica and the mortgage rate was about 8.75%. And that seemed really, really attractive relative to what I'd, you know, seen in my lifetime. And, uh, most people, you know, people under 45, under 50 have never really lived in an inflationary environment. And, uh, you know, the average American going to the supermarket and says, I came out of the market with a hundred dollars of groceries and it's half the groceries I usually buy. Um, so, um, the, the, the federal reserve and other central bank is going to have to kill inflation. Uh, it is very caustic on, on, on the consumers. And, uh, so that's going to, I think it, we're going to probably have some kind of recession. It's going to be a hard landing. And, um, you, know, you see these companies who say, Oh, you know, a caterpillar just reported and said uh you know, something like you know good earnings because we passed on all the increased cost to our customers well like mm-hmm. that can't go on forever um and uh uh when people come out of the market and say you know a gallon of milk is 10 bucks uh it creates real political pressure
0: yeah no to, to... You know,
3: i think we're gonna have a rocky road unfortunately again
0: yeah incredibly sobering um, Yeah. Well, thanks again. This has been Thank great. You. Um, you know, it's interesting that you gave us the classic book to Bill. It sounds like the bookings are high uh, for restructuring, <laughs> and uh, and and so I guess we'll be talking more about the billing part probably, you know, in the next right. twelve months. Right. Thank-
3: well, uh, it's been great talking with you, and I'd be happy to come back uh, in uh, six or twelve months, so we can uh, check back in. Oh, I'm definitely
0: taking you up on that. Thank you very You're much,
1: good. Bill. Thank you so much, Bill. <laughs> Wow, so great stuff, a lot there, certainly digest. Uh, Let me also thank Bill for taking the time, but uh, let's also keep drinking from the fire hose for just a little bit longer, and let's bring Nagisa in since we've been shunning her for so long. Nagisa, uh, still some stuff happening in your world, maybe let's start with some recaps. I know there's a little bit of update uh, in terms of the the Revlon situation, as well as maybe a little bit on J&J, so what's going on with those names? Sure. Thanks,
4: Noel. So on August 1st, Revlon secured approval of its dip that was kept largely intact. Uh, It followed a two-day evidentiary hearing with objections primarily by the Unsecured Creditors Committee. Um, Important to know that there were no objections to the actual need for financing and there were no objections to the terms of the loan itself. And much of the court's decision was driven by the fact that Revlon turned out to have very little negotiating leverage, and in this was basically a free fall bankruptcy, and there were no there was no alternative financing available. Uh, UCC was able to secure some modest modifications to the DIP. There was an increase of its budget and time to investigate avoidance actions, for example. There's also a two week extension in the plan filing timeline, but we don't expect these to sort of make a big difference in the case moving forward. Uh, the key legal dispute at the hearing related to the future treatment of potential avoidance action proceeds. Uh, the actions in question would be those against the co lenders uh, resulting from Revlon's 2020 transactions, which moved IP uh, out of his corporate entities and turned it into collateral for the loans by the BrandCo lenders. The success of such avoidance actions hasn't been tested, but it could be a source for distribution in the estate. It could ultimately be the only source for distribution to unsecured creditors. Uh, UCC argued that unsecured creditors should hold exclusive rights to the proceeds. The argument tracked uh, case law in the Texas Bankruptcy courts, actually, which seemed to uh, at least lean in that direction. Uh, Revlon disagreed it maintained that the avoidance actions are proceeds uh, of the estate or property of the debtor's estate and they should be available to dip lenders if necessary Um, the New York court agreed with Revlon it found no authority to prohibit dip liens on avoidance action proceeds and uh, it deemed them unencumbered assets and said that it had no power to actually mandate that they be preserved for unsecured creditors Uh, sort of Generally speaking of the dip, uh, key aspects of it, there was this $575 million new money facility provided by the brand call lenders. In total was a little over, I think, uh, $1.425 Um and,
1: and Phil, how does this jive? I mean, because I know you've been sort of watching the name as well and, and sort of had some views in terms of their operating performance it was looking a little bit better, you know, supply chain issues notwithstanding. Uh, you know, do these sort of events in the case and concerns about recoveries even to the unsecureds is that sort of is that consistent with with what you've been uh, expecting or looking for? Yeah, the
0: the, the, the this is going to be a hard case for the unsecured creditors to get value. Um, you know, it, it's really the, the best the best opportunity for them to get a recovery is really through a competitive auction process akin to Hertz. Uh, I think if they were just going to go in the court and try and argue valuation, uh, with a spreadsheet and multiples and comp tables, that's a loser. Um, you know, the, the other option for them is to write a big check and rarely have we seen unsecured creditors come to the table like that. So, um, I don't think, I think they tried here to carve out avoidance actions to be just theirs, but you know, clearly you have, other junior secured creditors who are seeing that value as potentially falling to them as well. So this is an unsurprising result, although it was a lengthy uh, discussion around it.
1: Interesting. So so maybe let's uh, turn to uh, up, any updates on the, on the J&J side,
4: I think you said. Yeah, so J&J actually had uh, what I consider a big one in July. The court gave the okay to start the tort Claim estimation proceedings, uh, which is which was something the tort claimants had opposed. Uh, the court actually um, went ahead and appointed Kenneth Feinberg as an expert. This was an uncommon move on the part of a bankruptcy court. Um, this is a court-appointed expert is supposed to be a neutral entity. His job is to produce a report with respect to the estimation of tal claims in bankruptcy. This is not the final word in the case. It can be a challenge by uh, both the debtor and the tort pl- plaintiffs who can hire their own experts and most likely will. Uh, but we ultimately think it's, a, it's good news for J&J um, when allowing the estimation to start the court once again refused to allow individual tries to go uh, to, to go forward, which is something that tort uh, plaintiffs had again asked for. Uh, there's no generally uh, th- there's no bankruptcy court guidance on how to structure estimation proceedings, but at the very least, it will mean more data, it will mean more time in bankruptcy, and as a result, more opportunity for J and J to negotiate a settlement. Um, the next topic after disputing there is uh, whether or not Tal claimants will be allowed to submit their own plan of reorganization. Um, for now, it's likely that the court will continue to give J&J more time to structure its own plan and sort of see where things fall down the road.
1: Interesting. So, so maybe keeping with uh, big blue chip industrial names with bankruptcy at the periphery, uh, we, we have, Jane, uh, Jamie has a little bit of friendship from 3M here. What's uh, what's going on with 3M?
4: Yeah, so on July 26th, 3M put its earplug business era in bankruptcy, this time in, in an Indiana bankruptcy court, seeking to resolve over 230,000 hearing injury tort claims um, through chapter 11. Uh, this. Are, would be related to allegedly defective earplugs. Over 99% of these cases are now in the largest multi-district litigation in U.S. history. Uh, the ultimate risk to the company is unclear, but the bankruptcy papers they filed mention numbers like over a trillion, for example, over a trillion dollars. So uh, the base Almost
1: as big as the last mega-millions payout. <laughs>
4: That's right. So the basis for the filing is sort of as complex as this tries forward. Like most of uh, what 3M has said in the filings is that uh, it revolves around what 3M perceives to be a broken down dysfunctional tort system that, according to the company, has made a settlement within the MDL virtually impossible. We spoke about J&J. It's not a stretch to say that 3M draws inspiration from J&J uh, and other companies facing mass tort liabilities who also are looking to Chapter 11 as a way to resolve them. But in 3M's case, uh, the company didn't actually follow J&J's Texas two-step maneuver who put J&J, remember, put all of his top liabilities in a newly created sub and then put the sub in chapter 11. In 3M's case, the debtor era was an existing sub, was acquired by 3M in 2008. Um, and there are also key differences between 3M and J&J's parent companies as well. J&J disputes, disputed its liability in the talk suits. Um, 3M doesn't. It's it, acknowledges that it acquired this earplug unit, is jointly and severally liable with it, and is a co-defendant of the suits. Uh, key to the case, again, drawing parallel is this funding agreement that 3M entered on the eve of bankruptcy, uh, agreeing to fund an initial $1.2 billion, uh, in large part to serve as a payout to this tort plaintiff's uh, in exchange, Arrow has pledged to indemnify 3M against any losses relating to the earplug suit, uh, suits. So the funding agreement uh, would basically conclude the case. It would cover both Arrow's and 3M's liabilities if it turns out to be successful. Uh, we do expect the 1.2 billion amount to go up, uh, view it only as an opening offer for now, but all of this is way down the line. We're probably talking years at this point. Um, So at this initial stage, though, um, the primary objective is to get the bankruptcy court to approve the stay of earplug related suits against 3M. Basic bankruptcy law to stay suits against a debtor, not basic, much more complex question when you're dealing with a non-debtor. And even more complex here, when you're dealing with a non-debtor who is a parent who is obviously solvent and who is jointly and severally liable with, uh, with a sub that's in bankruptcy. Um, the attempt to pause the suit relies on a combination of bankruptcy court's automatic stay, but also the court's general general equitable powers. Um, Arrow had asked for TRO at the very beginning of the case, the same day it's filed. Um, it, there was a very contentious hearing in July and ultimately tort plaintiffs agree to a three-week stay of depositions and trial deadlines in the mdl case a uh, preliminary injection hearing is set for august and we'll be watching that very closely there's some uh, potential hearings on the uh, violation of the automatic stay in august as well and those hearings will give us i think a, a good initial understanding of the extent which 3M may be able to take advantage of the Chapter 11 tools. Uh, This is a novel use of the bankruptcy system. We expect it to be very contentious. 3M does have an uphill battle, but uh, there's obviously no clear way of doing this. There's no roadmap for this. But that said, even if it's able to secure sort of a short, modest stay of tort lawsuits, it may be able to get some negotiating leverage, and sort of we'll see where things go from there.
1: So, so what dates are we looking at in August? Is this uh, late August, mid August?
4: Exactly mid August. Um, the preliminary injection hearing is August fifteenth and sixteenth. There's an August eighteenth hearing on um, uh, on automatic stay. Very interesting, though. There's stuff happening parallel in the MDL court. Uh, so this is outside of bankruptcy that the plaintiffs are sort of trying to challenge the bankruptcy filing from a in, from a totally different route here.
1: All right, so so no summer quiet for for creditors there. But um, all right, so let's maybe pivot. I mean, because it's been a long podcast today. I mean, with the very interesting discussion, maybe let's pick up oh, on one. Oh, 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 on oh, its hold it, no.
0: Don't, yeah, I I think don't we need a pitch on you know how can I learn more about the 3M? And, uh, you know, that that litigation, is there a oh webinar goodness. available? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: man. Ham-handed. Is there a webinar available? I guess. I, let me ask the question.
4: There definitely the a webinar available. August 10th is myself and Holly Fromm, who covers MDL suits. Uh, she's a lit- consumer litigation analyst in BI, and we'll be talking about 3M J. It's
1: at 10 a.m. Right. August 10th so so to our listeners I hope you're listening right as this comes out otherwise you're gonna to have to listen to the review of the webinar as well now Phil can I proceed absolutely I, all right so let's let's go to wrap here uh, because it has been a long podcast but I do want to wrap and get everybody's sort of views on on something that actually came up in Eliza you and Phil's conversation with bill and that is uh, you know something that's sort of unique in the the bankruptcy space a little bit right now, and that is crypto. Uh, Maybe, uh, Nagisa, since you're on a roll here, let's start with you. I mean, obviously we've got some bankruptcies in the space. Uh, Let's let's maybe go around the horn here and and get some thoughts here.
4: Sure, so again, we're in uncharted territory here. Uh, The question of whether crypto assets are property of the estate will be central to these bankruptcy cases. We've covered Celsius, um, where this question came up right at the beginning Uh, in Celsius. There's 1.75 billion assets on the petition date. Uh, There was a 12.3 billion decline, actually, from March. And a large majority, if not all of this, could ultimately be deemed property of the estate, making customers solely unsecured creditors of the exchange. In these cases, it appears for now, the contractual language is key. We've seen in Celsius very strong contractual terms governing these holdings. that say that customers transfer all rights and title, including ownership rights of their crypto assets to Celsius, giving it full discretion over the use of assets. And then we can contrast it with a pool of assets. Again, in Celsius, for example, a much smaller pool, only about 180 million, I think about only 4% of the total assets were that language is a lot softer. So it provides that crypto can, crypto remains with the user, prohibits the exchange from transferring, selling, and loaning it. That doesn't mean that these assets are available for customers. However, they're still unable to access them. We think that Celsius must procedurally try to bring a declaratory judgment to establish ownership rights of these assets, too. But I think the contractual language here will play a key role, and that's what we're keeping an eye on.
1: All right. Uh, Eliza, let's go to you here. So, I mean, obviously, you've been covering a number of these stories as well. Um, You know, what's what's your sense of things?
2: Well, one of the things I'm just really curious about is whether and what interest there will be in rescue financing and just the the type of uh, distressed guys and quote-unquote vulture investors that are usually the last line of defense for distressed companies, you know, that's their last hope for who might it come in and boost the whole situation or take them out of bankruptcy through a bid or buy up some assets. I'm not sure whether we will see that um, due to the nature of the assets, of course, and Phil made some comparisons to the insolvencies or bankruptcies of banks in the past but this again is even even different and more unique than that so um really curious about who will emerge as as bidders you know bill said that people were sniffing around and um i know so that's certainly what i see too or what i hear and um Interested to see. I mean, that's what I hear broadly, but then anyone I ask specifically, that <laughs> there's, said, there's
1: always they- sniffers, right? I mean, yeah, it's like window shopping. Doesn't mean you and no one buy. will
2: admit that they're one of the sniffers. So I'm curious to find out who the sniffers are.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting, and obviously not not exactly the same. But we did get news today about the BlackRock working or teaming up with Coinbase in terms of trying to uh, improve the offering there for, I guess, retail clients or whomever. But Phil, last word to you in terms of this crypto stuff. I, maybe Eliza already stole your thunder here, but uh, any last thoughts here?
0: No, I, I mean, that—that that is the, the situation is that you have these customers. They gave deposits to these crypto exchanges or banks, what have you. And now they're being told, oh, the, that Bitcoin you deposited here, you're actually getting ownership in a company. And my sense is that's not a successful way to run a business going forward. So the going concern value here is really dubious. And, you know, we've even seen that in court papers where they kind of like throw that out. Uh, There's been an objection filed by the uh, crypto uh, wizard uh, Samuel Bankman Freed, you know, where basically, he, he even talked about how he invests in crypto generally to save kind of the the whole culture. And, you know, in, in in an objection, which was really fascinating to read, you know, you don't hear investors say that sort of thing. So that is that is the million dollar question here. It's easy for a financial advisor or lawyers to sort of get the gig by saying, yeah, we're going to reorganize, you're going to have a company here. And, you know, the CEO and the board, they like hearing that. But when you get in front of the judge and the judges it's going to really be you know important decisions here by judge wiles and judge martin glenn of the sdny bankruptcy court because really do you this looks a lot like financial brokers and you have wind downs then and you end up like just providing recoveries there's no real going concern so whatever platform that people think there's value in my guess is it, it's going to be try and sold extremely quickly. And Voyager's already teed up bidding procedures, and I think that hearing is today, um, August 4th.
1: <laughs> All right. And and for those who may have missed it, also a very interesting interview with uh, Matt Levine that he did with Sam Bankman-Fried, I guess, maybe a couple of weeks back, that uh, you can find probably on Terminal and on YouTube and whatnot. Uh, with that, uh, we, we appreciate uh, all of our listeners' patience and joining us again for this uh, August edition uh, of the State of Distress Debt podcast. Hopefully you found it all as interesting as I did. And, uh, you know, uh, as always, we look forward to seeing everyone back here in September. Take care.